Open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3, if you would, and we will um, we'll get started here. My, I'm here with my wife, Jana. We have Isaiah, our little boy, and we have two girls, uh, Lexi and Felicity. One's almost four, one's almost six, and they're with their grandparents. And when we first moved up to Fargo, Jana was, uh, was pregnant with Felicity, our oldest, and so uh, she, we made that journey, you know, with her pregnant. Uh, she, our, she was born on December 25th, Christmas, in Fargo in 2012. And, uh, and it's been a joy and a blessing. But I think my wife's sacrifice in this church planning has been greater than mine, bringing a baby from Georgia to birth them in Fargo in the middle of the winter. And so it's been a joy, and we appreciate all the... I know the churches have been praying for us as we've uh, been doing that work down there in Fargo, and we really, really do appreciate it. So I'm going to start off by telling you a story by a man named uh, John Huth. And he is a scientist and a philosopher and also a kayaker. (laughs) And one weekend, he was up off the coast of Maine, and he rented a recreational kayak. And this is what he said. He said, I I rented a recreational kayak from the woman who runs the local post office. She did not, however, have any maps or compasses. Foolishly, I set off without them, paddling across a two-mile-wide bay with a life jacket tucked under the seat, wearing only a cotton T-shirt and shorts. I was about halfway across the thick fog rolled in. I couldn't see the shore. Uh, Fighting panic, I somehow had the presence of mind to try to find my bearings from the natural clues. I checked the wind direction, figured it would act as a natural compass. It was out of the southeast, good. Which way was the swell? Out of the southwest, good. I could hear waves grinding against the rocks, strewn beach to the northwest. When the fog obliterated all sight of land, I used these clues to guide myself to a narrow channel and then follow the wakes of lobster buoys in the incoming tide back to safety. The next day, he set out again. This time, he checked the direction of the wind before he went out and kayaked. The fog rolled in again, but this time, he was confident on his bearings because he had checked beforehand before leaving shore. And so he went out there, the fog came in, and he came safely back to land. And it was, it was no problem. But what he found out later was that same day, two other kayakers got lost at sea. And he said that he had, you know, survivor's remorse after that. And he thought to himself, what was the difference between me and them? And the only thing he could think of was one simple thing. He checked the direction of the wind before he left shore. And so in other words, he checked his bearing. He had a, a fixed point that when the fog rolled in, he would know where he was going. And it's interesting that we can use nature in this way. It's interesting that for, uh, you know, for, for as long as man's been around, we've used the stars to navigate uh, the skies. We know the ancient Polynesians used the rising and setting of the stars as a natural compass to navigate uh, the seas. And it's an amazing thing that God actually designed the world designed the earth that man would look to the heavens for navigation. Now, we have like this disassociation with it nowadays uh, because we're so, you know, I'm, when I'm navigating, I'm looking at my phone, right? And, but nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that like God's designed this earth in such a way that man would naturally look to the heavens. And even more interesting than that, man seems to have a natural inclination 
to know that God dwells in the heavens. Now, the Bible teaches that. Psalms uh, 123.1 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. But it's not exactly when somebody comes up at faith in Christ, you know, you're not like, step number one, where is God? Right? You don't have to tell them that. Like, they seem to know that they can lift their hands up to God. Just, Just like a child has to lift their hands up to parents. Like, we know God's big. We know he fills the universe. We know we look up to him. And so today, we're going to be reading here from Colossians chapter 3, and if you'll just read along with me, it says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Point one today, friends, is set your minds on Christ. Look to heaven. Fix your mind upon that. So that when the storms of life come in, you can keep your bearing. You can keep your bearing. There are essentially two things in keeping this fixed point of navigation. The first one is seeking. It says, keep seeking. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And seeking God is a fundamental part of the Christian walk. God promises that those who seek Him will find Him. It's throughout the Scriptures. Jesus teaches that we're to keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. We see this modeled in Jesus' life. You'd get break away from the crowds, and you'd go to spend alone time with the Father. We see him taking his disciples, like in Luke 11, 1, to go up on a mountain to seek the Father. Seeking is like a fundamental part of the Christian life, and Jesus did it, and we must do it too if we're going to navigate this life. If we're going to do so successfully, if we're not going to be lost at sea, we have to keep seeking God. As a believer... Uh, in Jesus, there comes a point in our life where we weren't seeking God. We were lost, right? And we can now say, I, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And, you know, for me, as a, a young man in 2004, I was uh, just graduated high school, a couple years out maybe, and I began, my life began to kind of unravel. I was living in sin. There was blatant sin in my life. But I was just, if you wanted to just describe my life at that time, it would just be described as lost. You know, I was lost at sea, if you will. And I, I had no great plans for my life. Even the things that I were pursuing weren't working out for me. And I think God in his sovereignty just began to frustrate my, my silly plans I had. And I began to seek him. And at the time, I began to pray this prayer, God, what should I study at Parkland Community College? Like, I knew to pray. I went to, I went to a Christian uh, school growing up. My mom was like a prayer warrior. I knew to pray. And I, for some reason, that was my prayer, though. And at some point, I kind of realized, well, that's kind of a silly prayer. How do I even know God wants me to go to Parkland Community College? <laughs> then I was like, maybe there's another college he wants me to go to. And so I began to pray about that. And then I go, wait a minute. What if God doesn't even want me to go to college? Finally, I said to the Lord, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. And he just spoke back to me in my inner man at that moment, and he said to me, you're not doing the things I've already told you to do in my word. And my life changed. It was the most life-giving rebuke I've ever received. My life changed from that point on, and Jesus became the fixation of my life. 
I, I was born again. I began to walk with him. I began to set my mind on him. I began to seek him and to seek him and to seek him. And he just began to grow me and to grow me and to use me more and to use me more. And, but it all happened at that moment. I was lost, but now I was found. But seeking it was just a fundamental part of my life from day one. From day one. And if you actually read the scriptures, you see Jesus saying all the time, Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? And oftentimes people were coming for the wrong reasons. But they need to seek, seek him as both Lord and God. That he is our great God and Savior. That he is the answer to all the problems in our life, in our society, in our world. That's who Jesus is. He's restoring mankind for all eternity. And he did it at the cross. The next thing is setting our minds on him. So it says to keep seeking, but then it says set. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things are, that are on the earth. If seeking is an active pursuit, setting is a defiance against anything that would take us off our goal. We have to seek him, but then we also have to resist the world and everything that would distract us. We have to resist. And there's so much that would distract us and try to take our attention. Even good things. And I think those are the things that often get us. I love my family. But if I live for my family, if everything I do is just about us, I'm not a godly man. And I'm not going to navigate my family in the direction of eternity. We're going to be selfish. We're just going to live for ourselves. We're not going to please God. And what's going to happen is sin is going to grow. It's going to grow in my marriage. It's going to grow in my kids. It's going to grow and it's going to corrupt us and it's going to destroy us. But if I keep my eyes on Jesus, if I fix my focus on Him, if I keep seeking him day after day, he will give me the strength I need to be the man that I need to be in my marriage, to be the father that I need to be. And I have so much to learn about being a father. My oldest kid is six, right? So <laughs> I haven't even got to the teenage years yet. You know, you guys can pray for me. <laughs> you know, I'll need wisdom. I'll need God to grow me, right? He's taking me from one place to the next, and he's teaching me as I go. And, but I have to keep seeking him. William Tyndale translated the Bible in English in 1535. Well, he was actually arrested in 1535. When he, and we have, most of our Bibles that we have nowadays, the ESV translation you see, I believe that's ESV that you see up there, is uh, still largely based off his work. The King James translation is largely based off his work. When he began to do this, though, he was basically a criminal. Translating the Bible into English was illegal. He was on the run, and eventually a, a, a guy he thought he could trust, a friend, turned him over, and he was arrested. And he was in jail for about a year, and then the king of England sentenced him to death for translating the Bible into English. And William Tyndale was tied to a stake, and he was going to be strangled to death. That's how he, they were going to kill him. And his, the last thing he said was, God, please open the eyes of the king of England. Now you think about that. His life's about to be over, and all he can think about is the mission. The mission God gave him. He had set his mind on Christ in the things above, that even when his life was about to be taken from him, he wasn't begging for his life. Instead, he said, God, please open the eyes of the king of England. He was on mission still. 
It takes that kind of resolve. That's the kind of resolve we as Christians are called to, to walk in that, to be faithful. Jesus says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We're called to be cross bearers. The call to be a disciple is a serious call. It's a call for wholehearted devotion. Jesus, Christianity, it's not just another religion that's kind of like the others and we have our own styles and flavor. God wants all of us. He's a jealous God that desires the very soul that he put within us. And he won't be satisfied with anything less than all of us. He wants us. And he wants us to be fixated and set on him. Two years later, King of England... He was ordering the Bible to be translated into English. <laughs> and it was, he didn't know it at the time, but it was largely based on William Tyndale's work. <laughs> and so we want to be on mission. And in the end, in the end, I promise you this, Christ wins. Everything will work out. We, we, I've been through hardship. I've been through heartbreak. I know what it's like to lose. But if you stick with Christ, you'll win. You will win. The practical application of that, friends, is you seek him. You seek him. There's a psalm that says, there's a psalm that says, you have commanded us to seek your face. And it says, Lord, I will seek your face. You have commanded, seek my face. Lord, I will seek your face. If we do that every single day, we are preparing ourselves for whatever that day brings us. And we don't know some days how stormy it's actually going to get. Some days it just rolls in on us. And you want to be prepared, and you do that by spending time with the Father, just like Jesus did. Point number two today is put off and put on. I want you to know these points as we go through them today, they all connect. Everything's going to flow as a believer in Christ that's been saved from our sins, that's been born again, that's, that we're his children. And we're talking about walking that out now. Everything we're talking about now with this put off, we're going to talk about putting off sin, and we're going to talk about putting on love. All of this flows from that seeking Christ, from setting our minds on him, from that devotional life that we have as we spend it with him. This other stuff is going to flow from that. If you try to do this other stuff that we're going to get into, and you're not doing the seeking and the setting your mind on Christ, it's just not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. So point two is put off and put on. Colossians 3, 5 through 17 says this. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them all away. Put them all away. I had to put off sin to follow Jesus. I was living again when it, back in 2004 when I began to follow the Lord as an adult. I had sin. I had to put away. There, it was incompatible to the calling of God on my life Sin is incompatible to the call of the Christian to be a disciple. The cross of Christ is powerful. 
There's no reason for sin to dwell, for us to walk in darkness. The Bible says God is light, and in Him there is absolutely no darkness at all. And friends, He has made His home with us. Sin can't live in our lives. And I promise you this, if you're struggling with sin today, and maybe even something on this list, I don't know, if you're struggling with a sin today, and it's a pattern in your life, it's a weekly occurrence, if you will begin, if you will put your flesh to death when you wake up in the morning, and you'll put God first in the morning, and you'll get in His Word, and you'll spend your time with Him and prayerfully go after Him, and prayerfully go after Him, God will have His way with you. And the Bible says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. If you will just stick with that, God's word will have his way with you. He will disciple that right out of you. (laughs) But you have to stick to the plan. You have to keep seeking. You have to set your mind on him. But he will have your way, his way with you. And God, you know, began to have his way with me. But for us, even if you're walking in the Lord, you know the sinful desires, no matter how spiritual you are, still rear their ugly head in our lives. And we have to put them to death. Sometimes you hear, you know, somebody say something like they, you know, they kind of imply they don't get tempted. Well, Jesus was tempted, Right? The sign of the spiritual person is that they actually put that temptation to death. The only people that aren't, you know, fighting the flesh, the only people that don't have to do that are the people that are just giving into it because they're not fighting it at all. They're just doing whatever it tells them to do. But as Christians, we fight, right? Jesus fought the flesh. He put it to death, and we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you want one really practical, there's lots of ways to do it in the Holy Spirit. You can go and you can search the Bible, and you can talk about all the different activities that the New Testament believer is supposed to do in the Holy Spirit. And those are all ways that you can put the flesh to death. All right, so there's some homework if that's you. But, uh, and that's all of us, so there you go. Um, but a real practical way is Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, how does he do it? Well, he uses the word of God. But you notice in Matthew chapter 4, he's not, he doesn't whip out his Bible and he's like, you know what, Satan, hold on. Uh, man shall not live on bread alone. He doesn't do that, does he? It was already in him. It was in his heart. And he had already been spending. He was that time in the desert. It was all time with the Father. He was seeking the Father. So we have to be those people that are in a place of preparation and that are equipped with that sword of the Spirit so we can put the flesh to death. And if we hide God's word in our heart, we'll be, able to, we'll be ready for that battle. But the second one is put on. And sometimes the greatest mistake that Christians make is they put all their efforts into just not doing. And that's a mistake because the greatest commandment is a positive command, not a negative. It's to love the Lord our God. That means you've got to do something. And we're called to be doers. <laughs> and uh, one of the most life-giving things for me in breaking free of, of sin as a, as a young man in my life, beginning to follow uh, Jesus, was I began to serve other people. I began to do the things God told me to do. I began to get involved in ministering to others and praying for others. And I began to do things. And in being a disciple, all of a sudden my time wasn't filled with these lazy activities where sin could creep in. But I was on the offensive. I was loving I was bearing my cross. I was going after God. I was doing whatever, whatever little thing. And it was all little things, guys. It was nothing glamorous. You know, I was a new believer. All right? But whatever it was, I had such zeal and joy to do it because I was excited to obey God. The Psalms say, David in the Psalm says, Lord, 
Enlarge my heart so that I may run after your commandments. And that's a great prayer. The Psalms are a great place to go when you're spending that time with the Father in the morning and go, God, today enlarge my heart that I may run after the things that you've called me to do today. That when those opportunities to serve come up, that I run to it. That I don't look to others to do it. I don't just, I, I'm not just an identifier of needs, but I'm a, I'm a meter of needs. Or I'm a servant. I say, I'll do it. Another thing with love is simply this. It's costly. And it says, above all else, put on love. It says, and above all these, put on on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, by definition, is costly. Love in the Bible is a verb. It's an action, all right? It's not a feeling. Oftentimes, when we, if we think, oh, do I love others? We think, how do I feel about them? And then we go, yeah, I love them. No, the question is, do I serve them? <laughs> what do I do? Christ loved us, and he didn't say, what do I feel about those humans down there? All right? No, he came from heaven to earth. He died upon the cross so that we could have life. He took my sin and my shame and he bore it for me so that I could live. He actually did something. The Bible says, and this is love, that God sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the, the, that's the magnum opus of love. It's an act of sacrifice. It's the ultimate act of sacrifice. And that's what we're called to walk in. We're called to walk in love. It also means... That, costly in another way and it means that we have to forgive one another right and it means we have to apologize when we're wrong we all still stumble in many ways james it says in the book of james i'm not talking about habitual sin we shouldn't be living in habitual sin but we all stumble in many ways we should be good at apologizing at christians we should be good at forgiving too i had i work i'm a sales manager in a, a tech office okay and i have this lady on my team and she's one of the rudest people I've ever worked with. She is. And she's, she's said some things to me that are like, they're actually so rude that like it actually, it doesn't necessarily get under my skin right away because it's like so unbelievable. <laughs> like I'm like in shock, <laughs> you know, which is probably, that's probably God's grace there. And there was a meeting we had and she, it's a team meeting. There's a dozen people in there. I'm leading the meeting. I make a comment. I wasn't asking for feedback. She pipes in and says something. And when she started to talk, I go, <sighs> like that. Because I've done this before. I've done it a thousand times. It was like a conditioned sigh. After the meeting, she comes to me and she goes, she goes, Steve, do you not want me to share during the meetings? She goes, when I shared, you visibly like, made this sigh and this gesture. And what she said was actually fine. <laughs> it was actually a good point. <laughs> And I was like, man, like, are we really having this conversation right now? Like, the, the rudest person in the office is, like, confronting me on doing something wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought about it, and I was like, man, that size, like, you condition, like, in my flesh, I'm like, you condition that side. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? And I just thought for a moment, I was like, what you said was fine. I said, you're right. I said, I apologize. I said, do you want me to apologize in front of the team? And she goes, no, that's fine. I've been really rude to you, and I'm sorry. And I said, okay. <laughs> Ever since then, things have been pretty fantastic by comparison. And, uh, and, yeah, and it's made things a lot better at work, too. But a little love and forgiveness can go a long way. And when we're the ones, when we take the onus, each one of us on ourselves to be the person that, okay, I'm going to be the first one to apologize, sometimes you just open a door up wide for somebody else. You know? And we have that 
perfect harmony that's defined by love in our relationships. And it's so essential. It's essential for your unity here, but it's also essential for the unity that we see in family. And that's point three today is God is redeeming family. God is redeeming family. And it says this in Colossians 3.18. And Paul is getting very practical here. And again, all these points, they all flow together. It starts with us seeking Christ. And then from that relationship that we have with God as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit through the grace that we've received through the cross, we then begin to put off old ways. We begin to put those desires for sin to death. We begin to, be, we begin to put on love. And now Paul knows this. The most practical place that you're going to get to do this is right at home in your own family. Right at home in your own family. And so it says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Earlier in in this chapter in Colossians, it says that we as individuals are being renewed into the image of our Creator. We're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. It's an inherent value that's placed upon each one of us. And the truth of the matter is, while it's like the best thing we have going for us inherently, that we're made in the image of God, it's also the very reason the consequences are so high when we sin. Because instead of reflecting God's image and His glory to the earth, what did we do instead? I know what I did. I did things my own way. I promoted me. I was selfish. I was lazy. I lived for me. If you would have looked at my life back in 2004, you would not have seen the glory of God. You would not have seen a reflection, not even a dim one, (laughs) let's be honest, of God. I promoted me, and that's sin. One of the most fundamental definitions of sin in the Bible is simply doing what's right in your own eyes. Simply doing what's right in your own eyes. And yet, what does Jesus do? He comes back, he washes us clean, and he makes us children of God. He restores this identity, but he actually takes it to a new place. In the Son, we are children of God. We, have, we share in the Son's inheritance. It's an amazing thing, but God is doing more than just restoring individuals. He's And it is a privilege that us as, as men and women get to come together in marriage and reflect the glory of God together. And if you know the story of Genesis, it was impossible for God to fulfill the commands and calling placed on his life apart from Eve. It was the commands that were given him, be fruitful, multiply. He could not do it on his own, right? And so the glory of God had to be fulfilled as men and women. But when you get to the curse after they had sinned, it says this. He says to Eve, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Those are both negative things. That same word desire 
is used in the next chapter of sin's desire for Cain as it crouches at the door. This isn't like a positive desire, okay? <laughs> rule over you. This isn't a positive like, oh, the noble king's going to rule. Not at all. This is a harsh rule. This isn't a good thing. So listen again to Paul in Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Don't try to desire to control them or to manipulate them. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't rule them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And what, There's a lot we could talk about on those, but I just want you guys to understand this today. Christ at the cross is redeeming marriage. He's redeeming marriage. And he's redeeming family. Guys, this one's not rocket science. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We know children need this. Everybody in this room is either a child or was once a child. And you know that you struggled with this, <laughs> right? And so your call in Christ, your call in Christ as a child who believes in Jesus is to obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's almost like there's a theme here, men. Gentleness. And I will tell you as a man who constantly has to learn to be more and more gentle that we struggle with that. That we struggle with that. And I even know men who aren't leaders in their home, and yet they're still not even gentle. It's like they're passive, but they're also harsh. And it's like a double whammy on their families. And let me just say this to the husbands, because I'm a husband today, that being the husband means you are the leader of your family, and you have a responsibility from God that's placed upon your shoulders. But you cannot use the authority God's placed upon you for your own self. Throughout the Bible, self-exaltation is condemned again and again and again and again. But you have to lead. You have to lead. And oftentimes when I talk with men, half the men need to be told, okay, look, you're obviously a leader, but you need to not lead with self-interest. You need to put your family's interests first. And you need to keep your family focused on Jesus. Other men are very passive, and they're not leading at all. Okay? And maybe they're not being harsh, but they're not leading, and they're not fulfilling the responsibility that God's put on their shoulders. And God has put it there. He has put it there. And so to love, to love your, your, your family, to love your wife, to be gentle with your children implies that you're going to lead them. It implies you're going to lead them. And as you guys do life together and you get on each other's nerves and you step on each other's toes, guess what, men? You're not going to be harsh. Dads, you're not going to discourage your sons. You're not going to, you're not going to ream them, <laughs> right? You're going to be patient. You're going to be kind. You're going to be gentle. We knew a, a man uh, back in Georgia, and uh, this was a man that Brian discipled. Uh, but when Brian met them, they were, the man was not leading his family. The man would go, and he would somehow talk dealerships into, into selling him a car, and he would never make a payment. 
And they'd call him, and he'd say, I'm working on it, working on it, working on it. And then he'd go to, they'd take the car back, he'd go to another dealership, and somehow he'd, he'd done this like three or four times. I don't know how he got away with it for so long. Anyways, the guy, the guy gets saved. He has his license taken away from him at this point. And he needs the work to provide for his family. He actually has like three or four kids at this point. Okay? And Brian tells him, he says, well, how are you going to get to work? You don't, have, you don't have a license. And the guy says, well, I'm just driving anyway. And Brian says, well, you got to stop it. He says, well, what am I supposed to do? Like wake my wife up with all her kids and have her bring me to work? And he goes, if that's what you guys need to do right now, that's what you need to do. And so him as a leader had to humble himself and he had to actually put more stress on his family because it was at that point in his life he had created all these problems for his family. But now to do, start doing things right was going to be costly. And so he had to set his mind on Jesus to, to do the things that were pleasing to the Lord. And even though it was difficult, they had to do them anyway. And they had to do them as a family. And as they begin to work through those things, and he got his license restored, like God blessed this family. I was the youth leader down there, and I had his kids, and I taught them. And they were the most wonderful, obedient children you'd ever meet, all right? God is redeeming family. He's in the business of it. He's restoring people, and he's restoring families to the image of their creator. And men, you know, three things that, that I would just tell you today, if I sound like a broken record with seeking the Lord, like, that's my goal. That's my goal today. And there's, there's a definition that a, a gentleman, I don't remember who it is, that a gentleman gives of what makes a good leader, and it's that he knows the way, he goes the way, and he shows the way. And so first and foremost, man, you have to know the way. You have to have your eyes fixed on Jesus and know that the storm's going to come in and you have to know the way in which you are to go. And so for that man who was being discipled by Brian, he knew the right thing to do in that situation. And even though it was hard, even though the fog had rolled in, he knew the direction that he had to go, no matter how costly it was. But you're only going to get that if you spend time with the Father. And your wife's your biggest influencer on, on the, the direction of your family, okay? And the Lord may even use her prophetically to, to speak direction to your family. But at the end of the day, you need to get with God. And you need to know the way in which your family's going. Because you need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. But it'll only happen if you seek Him. After you know the way, you have to go the way. This is essential, you have to begin to do the things that you're asking of your family. So if you begin, if you're talking to your family about how important church is, how important the Bible is, and all those things, but you're not spending time with them alone yourself, you're not going the way. You may know the way, but you're not going the way, right? Men, we should be first to apologize. Guys, I am really good at apologizing because I've had lots of practice. I've been wrong a lot, <laughs> Okay. But we, even if I'm 10% wrong and my wife is 90% wrong, guess who gets to be first to apologize? Me. Because I'm the leader. Okay? And men, you will really serve your... Even with your kids. My kids, it's actually, I think, harder for me to apologize to my kids, all right, than to my wife. Because usually when I have to apologize to my kids, it's, it's because I'm not doing this, this bottom part right and being gentle with my kiddos. But it's usually because they're doing something wrong. <laughs> right? And then they get on my nerves. 
right? But then I have to apologize for the way, like, I was usually right in my correction, but then I might, you know, I yelled at him or whatever I did, and I have to apologize for that. And that's actually hard to humble yourself before your little stinkers and apologize to them. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and I love my girls, and, uh, <laughs> and they're, they are precious. My, my oldest daughter, she's almost six years old, and she, she's a born-again believer, and it's not because of me, honestly. I, I do lead my family, but my wife is like, she's an evangelist. And she didn't take it for granted. She didn't take it for granted that our kids were like automatically saved because they're born to Christians, okay? They weren't. She knew that. And so she would say to her all the time, one day when you believe, one day when you believe, one day when you believe is what, how, how my wife would communicate Christianity to my daughter. And one day we're riding in the car and she, my daughter snaps back, I do believe. Quit saying one day. I do believe. And she was fervent. And she meant it. And like, seriously, we see it in her life. She shares the gospel with her little friends. And she'll come back to us and say, Mom, I shared the gospel with my friend over there. And she's like super awkward in it. Like, don't, like you know what I mean? And like sometimes me and, me and Mom will be like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> but it's great. Like we don't, we don't throw water on her fire, you know, because we want her to have that zeal for the Lord. But God is redeeming family. He really is. And he wants us to come together. He wants to breathe life into the context of family. And the barrier, the barrier to healthy families is sin. It is selfishness. It is doing things our own way. It is not getting our way. And for since Adam and Eve, families have been marked by sin. They've been marked by sin. And I know there's families listening to me today that are going through hard things. But I just want you to know that the cross of Christ is greater than anything you're going through. It really is. Like Christ died for the sin of the world, it says. He died for my sins, praise the Lord. But he died for the sin of the world. So that that means the bad things I've done, and that means the bad things that have happened to me, okay? My dad uh, was an alcoholic growing up, okay? Statistically, I really shouldn't be following the Lord, okay? He did not seek the Lord. He did not follow after him. But God still rescued me. And I just want you to know that the cross of the Christ is the means by which I can have peace with my dad even though he's not following Jesus. Because Jesus bore the sin of the world. He is the peacemaker. And he is the one that loved every single one of us even when we didn't deserve it. And so by the grace of God, I can love others even when they don't deserve it. But that love, that costly love that was shown to us and was shown to me, we have to show to the members of our family. We have to love them and love them and love them. And you might say, but this person's unlovable. But yeah, so was I. When Christ died for me, so was I. (laughs) You know? And so when we begin to do this, and you maybe are the only person in your family that's saved, as you begin to love them and show that sacrificial love, you'll still reflect the glory of the gospel in your family as that soul light, as you live for him and you do the things that are pleasing to the Lord. And he'll be with you. He'll be your strength. But you have a family here too that can support you and that can encourage you and that can breathe life into your relationships as well. But we need the Lord to redeem family in our culture. I'm so encouraged by the announcement that you guys made earlier today with how you're reaching out to a lost and and, and dying culture. And there's so many kids that need Christians to come into their life and to breathe life into it. And it will change their lives. We, me and Jana, we were in, when we were in college, 
we spent most of our times in the government housing neighborhoods, reaching out, building relationships with family. We did after school ministry, did Bible stories. And we got to know some of these families. One of the girls, we met her when she was nine years old, and we basically became her home away from home. And uh, she, uh, she got saved. She, she began to get on fire for the Lord. She, but her walk was so difficult because everybody else around her and her family was the complete opposite. And it was so hard for her. And her I mean, you have to understand, she had four, three or four other siblings, and she, there were th- like three other dads, okay? And the dads, the dads would come around sometimes here and there, but never, not much and not often. They really hated me because um, I was around often. But they, like, she needed such encouragement and such support. She actually came and lived with us. She's, she's a young lady in college now. She came and lived with us for a year last year. And uh, when, whether she was little or whether she was old, when she comes and she lives with us, it's like you can just tell. She just likes being there. It's like she's in a house where there's peace. And just opening up your doors and letting people in that don't get to experience that every single day. It's chaos. The police are there. You know, there's drugs. There's all kinds of, there's drunkenness. There's all kinds of stuff going on in the home. And you can open up your home and just be a place of peace. She used to come over to our house and lay down and just sleep on the floor. And she loved it because it was just peaceful and quiet. And so when she came in, when we had her up here for the year and we brought her into our house and she, um, Jana set up our guest room and, de- and decorated it for her. It was her room. Like, she started crying because she had, you know, she had her own room. It was hers. Like, she was, our, she was part of our family. And so, guys, Christ is redeeming families, and we can help others along the way. And the glory of the gospel, the glory of the gospel can be seen. We can be, we can be that, we can be the reflection Marriages, godly marriages and godly families can be the reflection of the gospel to a lost and dying world. They can be the reflection of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So I'm going to pray for us and just close with that. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need your grace in our life. We need your power, Lord, to walk in in your Holy Spirit. We need to spend time with you, God. Help me to seek you harder. Enlarge my heart. Jesus, enlarge my heart that I may run after your commandments. Lord Jesus, anything that I'm doing that's not pleasing to you, God, would you show me that? Would you reveal that to me? Would you reveal that to us today? We want to do the things that are pleasing to you, God. How can I better love my family? Would you show that to me now? Would you show that to us now? Lord, I thank you that you rescued us, that you are the life giver, that you are the redeemer, that you are the savior. It says, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. And we are. You've made us part of your family. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.